Good morning. It is so good to see you guys. If you have your Bible, open it with me to Isaiah chapter 44. And we'll be in Isaiah 44 through Isaiah 47. What an amazing passage that we're walking through this morning. Did you guys hear the story about the four people who were in an airplane together? There was the pilot, the smartest person in the world. He was an inventor. There was a United States senator and a Boy Scout. But one of the engines went out and the plane was going down. So the United States senator stood up because there were only three backpacks or there, there were only three parachutes, four people. So the United States senator stood up and he made a speech about how his party's platform is the hope of the world and he's the, the force behind it. So although there's four people and three parachutes, he needs to get one for, for the country. So he took a parachute and he bailed out. Well, next was the smartest man in the world, and he made a huge speech about how the world needs his mind and his inventions, so he took a pack and he bailed out. Now there's only one parachute left, and the pilot tells the Boy Scout, he says, you know what, I've lived a nice, full life. Take the parachute, jump out, it's yours. And to that, the Boy Scout said, actually, there's two parachutes left because the smartest man in the world took my backpack, so we're going to be okay. Now, that, that story highlights how sometimes we find ourselves in situations where it's important to choose well. In that story, the smartest man in the world chose poorly. And in this section of Isaiah, Isaiah 44 through Isaiah 47, God says, choose well when it comes to trusting in God. When it comes to answering the biggest questions of life, is there a God? If there is a God, who is this God? And what does this God have to do with your life? And choosing well in relation to God is even more important than grabbing the right pack before you jump out of an airplane, because it determines how our life will unfold. More importantly, it determines the legacy that we'll leave behind. And even more importantly than that, it determines our eternal life. You know, this past week, there was a couple of HopeWorks Christian Academy kids uh, running through the office, and they saw me, and, and one kid says, hey, you're Pastor Shane, and this little girl says, oh, I know you, you're God, aren't you? Are you God? I said, no, I'm not God. I think it's the no shame November beard that might have thrown her. I said, absolutely not. I said, I would be a horrible God. I said, God created everything. God created me. God created you. No, 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 no. I'm not God. She would have chosen very poorly. And God says to his people in this passage, choose well when it comes to God. But they didn't choose well, they chose poorly, and God goes on to make this huge, enormous, uh, prosecuting satire against Israel and Judah. And he says, "This, this is what you've done. This is how poorly you've chosen. You went, you planted a seed, you nurtured the seed, you watched the tree grow, you cut the tree down, you chopped it up into wood, you warmed yourself by a fire, and when there were some pieces left over, you, you propped it up, and you bowed down on your face, and you worshipped a piece of wood. This wood has, known, has none of the five senses. It can't smell, feel, hear it, touch it, it can't do anything. It can't think, it can't provide, and here you are on your face worshiping an inanimate object. You've chosen very poorly. 
and in Isaiah 44 through Isaiah 46, God employs some words to describe the result of choosing poorly. You might think that your life can coast on just fine. You can be belling out of an airplane and with a backpack rather than a parachute, and it seems like it's a pleasant experience for a few thousand feet, but it will have consequences. And God says, you've chosen poorly. You're worshiping an inanimate object, and there are consequences. Isaiah 44, 9, there's no profit to it. Isaiah 44, 11, it's going to bring you shame. Uh, Isaiah 44, 20, it's making you delusional. It's leading you astray. It's destroying your life. Isaiah 45, 16, your mind is filled with confusion and you are confounded. And our text verse is Isaiah 45, verse 5 and 6, and God says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Make no mistake about it, there's not a, a, a big mountain. And at the top of this mountain, there's this great, kind, uh, great granddaddy type being, and whatever path you choose doesn't really matter as long as you're sincere in your path. No, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. The Apostle Paul wrote of the cross of Christ. If salvation could be inherited in any other way other than through the cross of Christ, Jesus died in vain. And God says, you've chosen poorly, you've chosen a tree over the one who created all things. I am the Lord, there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you don't know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. And in these chapters that we're unpacking, Isaiah 44 through Isaiah 47, God repeats over and over, I alone am God. Perhaps you've heard of the story of the man who fell off a cliff and before he, he, he died, before he crashed to his death, he grabbed a tree limb. So he's hanging on the side of the cliff and it's, he can't climb up and if he lets go, he'll drop to his death. And so he's screaming for help and finally a voice says, I'm here. Don't worry. And he says, oh, thank goodness you're here. And the man says, who, who are you anyway? And the voice says, I'm God. And the man says, oh, that's great. Uh, God, th throw me a rope. And God says, let go. I'll catch you. And the man says, is there anybody else up there who can help me? See, this is what God is asking. He's asking us to let go and trust him. And God gives us reasons why he is trustworthy. He gives us reasons why if we let go and place our trust in him and him alone, that he is trustworthy and he will catch us. And in Isaiah 44 through 47, he gives us two overarching reasons why he's trustworthy. The first reason is because of prophecies. The second reason is because of creation. Prophecies and creation. Prophecies. Prophecies are God calling the end of the matter at the very beginning. Prophecies are God spelling out in detail something that's going to happen way before it ever happens. And it happening exactly as God said it would happen. 
And God says, those trees that you cut down and you bowed before and you started worshiping, can they, one, can they speak? Can they think? Much less, can they call a matter out in specific detail centuries before it happens? No, I alone can do that. I'm God. Prophecies and creation. So let's look at these. Prophecies and creation. First, Isaiah 44, verse 6 through 8, God explains why he is trustworthy. He says, because I call the matter out. The end of the matter at the very beginning, verse 6 through 8. He says, thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and see it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Did you see that? He's saying, I am God. There is no other. I'll prove it to you. I'll declare what is to come and what will happen. Who else can do that? Nobody. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from old, of old, and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. See, if you're going repelling, before you jump off the side of the cliff, you have an important decision to make. What are you going to anchor your rope to? It's a very important decision. Not all rocks can hold you up. You better choose well. And more important than jumping off the side of the cliff, who are you going to trust as your God? Is there a God? If God, which, if there is a God, which God? And what does this God have to do with your life? God says, Choose wisely, and I'll help you choose who can call out the end of the matter in great detail before it ever happens. Again, chapter 45 and verse 21, and God says, declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me a righteous God and Savior. There is none beside me. And again, as we continue in chapter 45, verses 22 and 23, turn to me and be saved. In other words, I don't want you to choose a backpack over a parachute. I don't want you to choose a, a weak, dead twig over a boulder. Because I want your life to be incredibly blessed. So, verse 22, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, for my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. To me, every knee shall bow, every tongue swear allegiance. So let's just look. There are many prophecies, hundreds of prophecies in Scripture. Hundreds of prophecies just about Jesus. In fact, if Jesus... Uh, if somebody accidentally fulfilled just seven of the messianic prophecies fulfilled in great detail by Jesus, the odds are mathematicians have crunched the numbers, one in ten to the seventeenth power. To put a picture to that likelihood, it would be the same as getting in an airplane, flying over the state of Texas, covering the state of Texas with silver dollars, two feet deep, randomly circling around, blindfolding somebody, then jumping out of the plane, parachuting, landing, and the first silver dollar they pick up is one that was marked with a dot on it, and it was just by chance. That is one in ten to the seventeenth power. Now, we're, gonna, we're not going to look at all all the biblical prophecies or even the specific prophecies pertaining to Christ, we're just going to look at a handful of the prophecies that are unpacked in our text, Isaiah chapter 44 through Isaiah chapter 47. So first, 
In 740 BC, God, through the prophet Isaiah, said that Babylon is going to conquer Jerusalem. He said that Babylon is going to conquer Jerusalem. In Isaiah um, 47, verse 1, we read, Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin Babylon. Sit on the ground and without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans. Those are the Babylonians. In verse 5 and 6, Sit in silence and go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans. For you shall no more be called the mistress of kingdoms. In other words, Babylon was once a mighty empire. I was angry with my people, Israel. I profaned my heritage. I gave them into your hands. In other words, Babylon was God's rod of discipline. I gave them into your hands. You showed them no mercy. And the aged you made your yoke exceedingly heavy. And in many places in Scripture, God prophesies that Babylon will conquer Jerusalem. And that happened. The first siege from Babylon conquering Jerusalem was in 610 B.C. And that's when Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were carried off into captivity. And they continued to be oppressed by the Babylonians until ultimately Jerusalem and the temple was destroyed in 586 B.C. In this portion of Scripture, God not only prophesied that Babylon will conquer Jerusalem, but also in time Persia will conquer Babylon. And this occurred in 539 B.C., about 70 years after the captives were carried away into Babylon. We read of this in Isaiah 47, verse 9 through 11. These two things shall overcome you, God talking to Babylon, in a moment, in one day. And by the way, biblically, you can cross-reference this with the night in the book of Daniel, that there was the handwriting on the wall when... um, when the Babylonians were in a drunken feast and Persia took them in a night. These two things come to you in a moment, in one day. The loss of children and widowhood shall come upon you, God says to Babylon. It will come upon you in full measure, in spite of your many sorceries and the great power of your enchantments. That's fulfilled, spoken in 740 B.C., fulfilled about 200 years later in 539 B.C. God prophesies through Isaiah in 740 B.C., that a leader will be raised up, and he calls this leader by name. This leader's name is Cyrus. And God writes of Cyrus, 200 years before Cyrus is born, calling him by name, in chapter 44, verse 28. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose. Sing of Jerusalem, she shall be built. Jerusalem at this point wasn't destroyed. It's a prophecy within a prophecy. Jerusalem will be destroyed in 610 to 586 B.C., and it will be rebuilt. And of our temple, which isn't destroyed yet, your foundation shall be laid. It will be rebuilt through the leadership of a pagan who didn't profess God as his God, a pagan that he would rise up from Persia Persia named Cyrus. I'm sure you've heard of Cyrus in history. God also prophesies of Cyrus, that Cyrus will be the one who will set the captives free, and it was prophesied that these captives would be in captivity for 70 years. Chapter 45, verse 13, God continues about Cyrus. I have stirred him up, talking about Cyrus, stirred him up in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. 
This was prophesied by Jeremiah in, 20, in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 10 and 11. And we read in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 10 and 11, that thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. In other words, my people will be in captivity in Babylon for 70 years. And when that's done, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promises and bring you back to this place. Their captivity would last only 70 years. Ezra was a contemporary of Cyrus. And Ezra, in chapter 1, verse 1 through 4, speak of the decree that Cyrus issued to send the captives back. And in Ezra chapter 1, verse 1 through 4, Cyrus declares that the children of Israel will be freed and he sends them back. Cyrus sets the captives free. And, um, and then we also read that Cyrus conquered Babylon in a very specific way. And we read in chapter 45, verses 2 through 4. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break you in pieces, the, and I will break down the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. Babylon was known to have many iron and bronze doors all around their city. I will give you the treasures of darkness in the center of the city of Babylon were many treasures, many of which Babylon stole from the temple of God 70 years before. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes and the secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who calls you by name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen. Watch what God says about Cyrus. I call you by, my, by name. I name you, though you do not know me. History records Cyrus as a pagan. History bears out this claim. An ancient historian, Herodotus, this is a pagan, this isn't a biblical text, this is a pagan historian. Herodotus writes of how Cyrus conquered Babylon. And he writes in great detail, and it's exactly as Daniel records it, and it's exactly as Isaiah prophesied it 200 years earlier. Somebody suggested to Cyrus, or he himself thought it up, the following plan. He stationed part of the forces at the point where the Euphrates flows into the city and another contingent at the opposite and where it flows out. The orders to both, both to force an entrance along the riverbed as soon as they saw the waters were shallow enough. Then, taking with him his non-combatant troops, he withdrew to the spot he had excavated the lake and proceeded to repeat the operation which the queen had previously performed. By means of cutting, he diverted the river into the lake, which was then a marsh, and in this way so greatly reduced the depth of water in the actual bed of the river that it became fordable. And the Persian army, which had been left at Babylon for the purpose, entered the river, now only deep enough to reach about the middle of a man's thigh, and, making the way along it, got into the town. If the, Bablo if the Babylonians had learned what Cyrus was doing, or had seen it for themselves in time, they would have let the Persians enter, and then, by shutting all the gates, which led to the waterside and manning the walls on either side of the river, they could have caught them in a trap and wiped them out. But as it was, they were taken by surprise. See Daniel 5. The Babylonians themselves say that 
owing to the great size of the city, the outskirts were captured without the people in the center knowing anything about it. There was a festival going on, and they continued to to dance and enjoy themselves, and they learned the news the hard way. That, that then, is the story of the first capture of Babylon, and it's exactly to the detail how God said that it would take place 200 years earlier. In fact, there's a cylinder. It's currently housed in the British Museum with an inscription by Cyrus. Among other things, Cyrus inscribes on this cylinder, I am Cyrus, king of the world, great, mighty king. When I well disposed enter Babylon, I established the seat of government and the royal place amidst jubilation and rejoicing. Marduk, it's a pagan god the Babylonians worshipped, the great god, (laughs) he was a pagan, caused the big-hearted inhabitants of Babylon to love me. I sought daily to worship him. Thus, God said, I'll raise up Cyrus. I know his name. He doesn't know my name. And my deeds, Marduk, the great Lord, rejoiced unto me, Cyrus, the king who worshipped. Cyrus goes on to write, the holy cities, the ones that Babylon destroyed, the holy cities beyond the Tigris, speaking of Jerusalem, whose sanctuaries, the temple of God, whose sanctuaries had been in ruins over a long period, the gods who abode is in the midst of them. I returned to the places and housed them in lasting abode. I gathered together all their inhabited and restored to them their dwellings, exactly as God said that it would happen 200 years earlier. God says, it's very important which pack that you choose. Is it a backpack? Is it a parachute? It's very important what you anchor your rope to. Is it a dead twig or is it a strong boulder? And most importantly of all, it's very important who you choose as your God. And no, I alone am God. Besides me, there is no other. I'll prove it to you. I call things out in great detail before they happen, way before they happen. I alone am God. Look at my prophecies. God also says, you can trust me because look around at creation. Chapter 45 and verse 18. And we read. For thus saith the Lord, who created the heavens, he is God, who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. God says, I am the Lord. There is no other. You can put your trust in me. Look at my prophecies. Not only that, look at my creation. I alone am God. There have been some really crazy thoughts about how the earth was established. Take the, take the Greek school of thought, for example and the Roman school of thought. They believed that there was a God who upheld the dome of the heavens on his shoulder. His name was Atlas. They thought, what what is the solar system like? Well, it must be held up by some God on the back of his shoulders. Or take the Hindu example, for example. The Hindus believe that the earth is resting upon some elephants. You see, they were good thinkers, so they started thinking, but if the earth is resting upon the back of elephants, elephants, what are the elephants on? And so, in in the Hindu belief system, they thought, well, then the elephants must be on the back of a turtle. That makes sense, right? Well, if the elephants are on the back of the turtle, what's the the turtle on? Well, the turtle must be on the back of a snake. Well, if the turtle's on the back of a snake, then what's the snake on? Well, the snake must be swimming through some cosmic 
see. You know, the Bible, which is more ancient, even dating back to its first writing, Job, in 1,700 years before the time of Christ, 1700 B.C., you find no such ridiculous nonsense. Instead, you find perfectly accurate astronomy in relation to the cosmos. God says of earth in Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 22, Written 740 years B.C. It is he who sits enthroned above the circle or the sphere of the earth. How did Isaiah know that in 740 B.C.? We can cross-reference that with Job in Job chapter 26 Verse 7, the most ancient of all biblical texts, again, written in 1700 B.C., Job writes, inspired by God, he stretches out the north over the void, watch this, and hangs the earth on nothing. How did he know that? Because he was inspired by the one who made it all. And in relation to the universe, let's go back to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 22. And let's look at the second part of it. We read that God stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. Amazing, isn't it? You know, Albert Einstein said that his greatest cosmological blunder was that he thought at one time that the universe was static or constant. In other words, everything was simply fixed in space. But we know now that the universe itself is expanding. You can't see it happening on earth, but space itself is stretching. The universe itself is getting bigger. Ever since God said, let there be, and there's this incredible explosion, boom, the universe is expanding. It grows every year. An increasingly larger amount, expanding faster than the speed of light. You know, it's very interesting, and they say that Einstein's greatest cosmological blunder really wasn't a blunder after all because there was a constant. There was something that was holding, though it's expanding, it's not expanding out of control. It's perfectly order, and there's some energy that's mysterious that scientists and astronomers know nothing about called dark energy that's holding everything together and causing it to expand at exactly the perfect rate. You want to know what dark energy is? It is the Word of God. The Bible says that Christ holds all things together by the power of his word. We read again in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 12. I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hand that, watched this, stretched out the heavens. And I commanded all their hosts. We read again in Isaiah 44, verse 24. Thus saith the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord, who made all things, watch this, who alone stretches out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. And again in Psalm chapter 104, 
in verses 1 through T, 1 and 2. Blessed the Lord, O my soul, O Lord my God, you were great, you were clothed with splendor and majesty. Covering yourself with light as with a garment, watch this, stretching out the heavens like a tent. In 700 BC, how did Isaiah know that? In 1000 BC, how did the psalmist know that heaven itself is stretching? Because they were inspired by the one who created it all. Now let's consider the oceans. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 43 and verse 16. Thus saith the Lord, watch this, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters. Isn't that interesting? A path in the mighty waters. We can cross-reference that with Psalm chapter 8, verse 8. Whatsoever passes through the paths of the sea. Did you know that there's paths in the sea? Well, it wasn't discovered until the mid-19th century. In 1860, a pioneer in oceanography, Matthew Fortin Maury, called attention to the fact that the ocean was a circulating system. His book on physical oceanography is still a highly regarded source of information on this science. Consider, for example, the Gulf Stream flows from the east coast of North America toward Europe. It is about 50 miles wide, about 3,000 feet deep. Its rate of flow, measured in volume per second, is about, is about 1,000 times greater than the flow of the Mississippi River. How did they know? How did Isaiah know in 740 B.C. that there were literally paths in the sea? Because he was inspired by the one who created it all. So God says, choose wisely. Choose wisely. I alone am God. Why is the Bible packed with prophecy, specifically Isaiah 44 through Isaiah 47? Why is it packed with prophecy? Why is it packed with uh, imperfect integrity in terms of our solar system and the cosmos? Because God wants you to know, I am trustworthy. I alone am God. God is our God. There is no weather. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And so what is our takeaway? Our takeaway is this. Whether you want to admit it or not, our plane is crashing. And whether you want to, whether you like the idea of it or not, we all have to make a decision on what we are going to strap on our back before we jump out. Choose wisely. God says in Isaiah 44, verse 22, this is the reason that I gave you these prophecies. This is the reason that I told you about creation. This is the reason I call things in great detail hundreds of years before they happen, so that you know I'm trustworthy. And if you trust in me rather than some false god, and a false god, by the way, isn't just a tree that you cut down and bow down before. A false god is anything that you put your confidence in more than Christ. A false god is anything that you love more than Jesus. We can worship the God of success. We can worship the God of alcohol. We can worship the God of lust. We can worship the God of materialism. We can worship the God of the opinions of others. We can worship the God of ease. We can worship the God of comfort and conveniences. A false God is anything that you trust and love more than the only God. And God says every other God 
is crashing because I alone am God. But the reason I am so adamant that you know that I alone am God is because if you trust in me, you will be blessed. And I've created you to bless you. I've created you to know you, to love you, to be known by me, to grow in me. Verse 22, chapter 44. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. And again, God says, it's, it's very important to me. I'm adamant about it, that there is no other God than me. Because it will greatly impact your life, what you, who you trust in as your God. Isaiah 46, verse 12 and 13. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. Is it not far off? And my salvation will not delay. I will put my salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. I, um, I was tagged in a post recently, uh, this, this past week. It's an old friend. I haven't seen him 20 years. And he's a pastor now in Washington State. I, I didn't know that. But uh, 20 years ago, I, I, we, we had this coffeehouse ministry. Bands would come into play, and our motto was serving the good news over live music and a hot cup of joe. Well, he tagged me in a post. He said, I just want to say thank you to, to my friend, Pastor Shane, because I went to his coffeehouse 20 years ago. And I heard him preach the gospel. And though I was raised in church, that was the first time I ever heard the gospel. And he said, it changed my life. And so I shared that with our men's group, and it just gave me this fresh urgency to finish this sermon by sharing the gospel as clearly and succinctly as possible. To give you a very clear choice about which pack you will choose. A backpack or a parachute. The gospel is our foundation. And a strong foundation allows us to big, build a big building. But sometimes we can become so focused on the windows and the walls that we lose sight of the foundation. I've seen many seminary students come out of seminary and they can tell you all about the walls, but are real shaky on the foundation, so that if they had to lead somebody to Christ, they would really stumble over their words and be confused about it. And so let's just get real simple and real clear on the gospel, because the essence of Isaiah 44 through 47 is, trust me with your life, trust me with your soul, trust in the one true gospel of Jesus Christ. So, our one New Testament verse that we're going to read is Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. And Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says, For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one will boast. Let's read this again, more slowly. For by grace you've been saved through faith and this is not your own doing it is the gift of God it is not a result of works so that no one can boast and so let's just unpack this gospel 
as clearly as we can. The first statement that we see in this gospel is that, we, is that it is grace in which we are saved. We are saved by grace. It is grace in which we are saved. The second statement that is very clear is that it is not works that save us. The first statement, it is grace that saves us. The second statement, it is not works that save us. Did you guys hear that in Ephesians 2, 8, 9? For it is by grace that you are saved. But it is not by works that you are saved. So we know two things. We know, one, grace saves us. Secondly, we know that works do not save us. Well, if grace saves us, and if works do not save us, I think it's pretty important that we define both grace and works. So let's start by defining works. Works is what I do for God. Grace is what God does for me. And so... I have two props here to help us understand works and grace. Some of you thought we just accidentally left the ladder out, right? Well, this is on purpose. So this is the ladder of works. So we'll picture God at the top of the ladder, and we'll picture ourselves down here. And works is what we do for God. Works is climbing a ladder to try to get to God. So let's think of some works. So you guys help me think of some works. What are some works that we typically uh, try to do in order to climb to God? So you guys just say them out loud. Help me with these works. Anybody? Good. Being good. So let's put this being good there. Okay, say them out loud. Somebody help me with some more works. What are they? Obedient. Okay. Obedient. Here's another work of obedience. What are some other works? Anybody? Serving in church. Yeah. I heard a brother tell me once, he was cleaning up around here so diligently, and he said, man, I think if I just clean up enough that uh, God will let me into heaven. I said, it's not, it doesn't work like that, you know. That's this ladder business over here. You serve around here. What, what are some other works that we try to do? Helping other people. These are good things, aren't they? Helping other people. Who do you think of when you think of helping other people? Who's the first name that comes to mind? Mother Teresa, me too. Helping other people. What are some other works that you guys can think of? Anybody? How, how, about, how about no adultery? That's a good one, right? That's a good one. No adultery? The law? Yeah, that's a good one. Forgive, yeah. You got to forgive people. Love, yeah. That's good. How about um, we shouldn't we shouldn't kill people, probably, should we? Let's not kill people. All right. So this is this is what people think that 
works, or this is works, and this is climbing the ladder. And as long as I try to love people, I try to be good, I try to forgive people, I try to serve around the church, I try to help out, I try to be obedient, I, I, I try to keep the law the best I can, I try not to kill people, I try not to commit adultery, you know, the, the big ones. As long as I do these things, well, then I will climb the ladder. But what did we just read? Works is what we do to get to God. And we just read that nobody is saved by works. Nobody. Well, you know, we think of the people that, that have climbed the highest. I don't think they were really climbing, but in our estimation, they got pretty high on the ladder. You know, if, if this is us down here and this is God, how high do you think Mother Teresa climbed? Oh, my goodness. She loved well. But you know what? The Bible puts her right down here in her own works. Believe it or not, there is none righteous. No, not one. Man's filthy rags looks like, man's righteousness looks like filthy rags compared to God's holiness. Well, if Mother Teresa is there, how about somebody who who served the church a lot? You know, Billy Graham served the universal church. He would probably be right down here, right under Mother Teresa. So if that's Mother Teresa, that's Billy Graham, where would you place yourself? Would you place yourself maybe, maybe down here? Me too. Which means we've got a long ways to go. And the Bible says nobody has ever climbed high enough. Because what do you know about climbing ladders? This is what I know about climbing ladders. Climbing ladders to be right with God is so frustrating because I fall. I might climb a pretty good distance today, but I fall tomorrow, and that's my pattern. And if you're honest, I would dare say that's your pattern as well. So works is what I do for God, and the Bible is clear, nobody's saved by works, but grace, grace is what God does for me, and that's what the cross is all about. You say, well, Aren't works important? Isn't holiness important? Yes, yes, of course. But on the ladder, holiness fails. Through the cross, holiness flows. On the the ladder, I fall. But at the cross, I fall deeper into God's love and grace. As I climb the ladder, I fear God, and there's this tension between God and me, and I beat myself up, and I'm honest with you guys. When my mindset is on the ladder, I have a very condescending uh, conversation with myself consistently. But over here on the cross, I'm not trying to, to, to climb to God, but rather I trust in what God did for me, and I simply receive that. And I love the one who loved me, and love for him flows in return. The cross is called religious works. The the ladder is called religious works. The cross is called a relationship with God. Nobody has ever been saved by climbing the ladder, but the worst of sinners is saved in a moment when we place our faith in what Jesus did for us. It is grace that saves us. We will never be saved by works 
works is what I do for God. Grace is what God does for me. So how do we receive this grace? We are saved by grace through faith. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world, but not only that, I believe that Jesus died on the cross for me. And I trust him personally. And I accept him into my life by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus to save me. And at that moment, we are born again and heaven bound. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Stand with me, please, as well. Father, thank you for declaring in Scripture. In 740 B.C., over 2,100 years ago, the end of the matter in great detail, way before the matter ever came around, so that we know that you are God. Thank you for describing in great detail in 1700 B.C., in 1000 B.C., in 700 B.C., the cosmological order of things so that we would know who created it all. Thank you for going to such great detail to show us that you are God and there is no other and you are trustworthy with our heart and soul. And so, in closing, I wonder how many of you have been living life over here on the ladder, and you've just been discouraged, you've been disappointed, you felt like a failure, you feel like God is, is angry at you, and you want to move your thought process over here to the cross, where you receive His grace, His love, His mercy, His forgiveness, and then you just are a conduit of that. And it flows from your heart back to God and to everyone else. If you've been on the ladder, you want to move to the cross. You want to take off a, a backpack that's crashing and put on the real parachute that saves you. And see the world not from the cross, not, not from the ladder, but see the world from the cross. If that's you, I would like to pray for you. Just raise your hand high. And perhaps you're here this morning and you've never really trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. But you would like to do that this morning too. You know, if you pray to receive Christ this morning, you, you will remember this moment for the rest of your life in perfect clarity like it was yesterday. I still remember when I prayed to receive Christ as a kid. My brother was crawling around in the shelves that were green. And I was kneeling at the bed, and I prayed to receive Christ. It was a long time ago, but I remember it like it was yesterday, because Jesus saved my soul. If you would like to pray to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I just want to pray for you now as well. If you would like to trust Christ with your eternal life, to forgive you of your sins, raise your hand high. I would like to pray for you this morning. Okay, God bless you. Let's all pray in an audible voice to encourage the person next to you. Call out to Jesus. Jesus, I know that I've sinned. And I know that I can't climb my way to you. So thank you for the cross. Thank you for paying for my sins. Come into my heart and give me your gift of righteousness. Make me your child and save my soul. And help me to grow in a relationship with you. Help me to receive your love. And help me to return your love. 
And for those of you followers of Christ who've been living life through the perspective of the ladder than the cross, this morning, just repent of the ladder. And just thank Jesus. Thank your friend for the cross. Thank your friend Jesus. He says, you're not just my servant, you're my friends. Thank your friend Jesus for the cross. Thank him for saving you. Thank him for forgiving you. And just return his love. So, Father, my friends who raise their hand that they're living life through the perspective of the ladder rather than the cross, we in Jesus' name bind a spirit of legalism, and we pray that they would be immersed in the glory of grace so that their hearts are overwhelmed with gratefulness and love for you, your church, and a lost and dying world. In Jesus' name. Let's just respond and thank Jesus for the cross, and feel free to come to the altar and present your body a living sacrifice. And ask Jesus to help you live life through the lenses of the cross rather than the ladder.